The sermon passage from today comes from Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So now, Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name. We come believing that your Spirit is with us in this place. And we come believing that you long for your people to see Jesus and be moved to worship and love and faith and trust and obedience. We come believing that you long for your children to be overwhelmed anew with your grace and your mercy. And we come believing that you long to make new people in this room your children, perhaps for the first time. So Lord, we pray that you would work in power. We pray that all the things that need to be accomplished in this room today, you would do them. We pray that you would bear much fruit for the glory of your name. Father, work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please take a Bible. Turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. Here at Redeemer, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews. And today, we come to chapter 8. Um. Few things. I, I think I decided in the first service that we'll spend an extra week in chapter eight. So this is this is one of two here, and um, in many ways, you've come on the right week because the argument of chapter eight, I would argue, really is the crescendo main argument of all of the book of Hebrews. I think we could also argue that it's really the main argument of all of the New Testament. I think we could argue that in many ways it's the main argument of all of the Scripture. And if it's the main argument of all of the Scripture, then it, it's likely the main argument of all 
of history. And this is the argument. That in all ways, Jesus is better. Because he always stands to minister to his people and will do so forever. Now, if you were with us last week looking at chapter 7, that'll sound familiar because we said that, like last week's sermon, going through chapter 7, considering Melchizedek, we said the main point is that Jesus always stands to minister to his people and will do so forever. And all chapter 8 does is it lifts up that argument and it says, and it's better in every possible way that this is true. And so what I am hoping that you and I and all of us will leave here today with is this conviction. That in every way, all things are better because Jesus is the Savior who reigns. And second, I'm pleading for the Lord to stir within us that you would leave here praying this. God, help me Stop looking for something better than Jesus. Because in many ways, the human experiment is a search for something better than what God has already given us in His Son. And that's the argument of this passage. Now, it's a simple argument. We go through, we're going to go through a, a deep forest and, and lots of deep weeds to get to that simple argument. But that's it. That's the argument. In all ways, Jesus is better. And that's what I want you to believe. So friends, if you're here today, not because you're a follower of Jesus, but because you're just kind of checking out what church is, you're just kind of checking out what the gospel is, if you're here today because somebody made you come with them, like you lost a wager or something, and you had to come here today as a cause for that, I'll just say this. I'm glad you're here, and I do not believe it's an accident. And what I would invite you to consider is those longings in your soul that keep you awake at night, those longings in your soul that don't let you find any rest or hope or comfort or peace. I would invite you to consider that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the answer to all of that. And I believe that's what this passage is going to show us. So if you would just, with an open mind, maybe for the first time, pray something like this, Lord, help me see Jesus in the next few minutes. I think he'll answer that. I really do. And that's what I'm eager to see happen today. Now, do not take my word for it. Let's see if the passage says these things. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 together. First point, if you're a note taker. Jesus is better and forever. Jesus is better and forever. Now, I struggled to make the English of that point work out, and I just couldn't figure it out, and I, and I realized this. I'll just fall back on the fact that I'm from West Tennessee, and grammar, we're not good at that. Right, Molly? I'll see you back there. That's right, okay. But it's true. Jesus is better, and Jesus is forever. And that's a mouthful, so we're going to shorten it somehow. But that's what this passage is calling us to believe. Now, now let, let me show you this. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Now, now listen. This isn't rocket science, okay? When the Scripture says... The point is this. You should stop. You should reread it. You should underline it. You should highlight it. You should circle it. Like This is where the Bible is trying to make it clear for us. The problem is he's going to take six verses to tell you what the point is that he wants you to remember. And it's, gonna, it's an argument that's going to build. But the point is this. 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now that points back to chapter 7. So he's saying the point is Jesus is this great priest who always stands to minister to his people and will do so forever. And then he's going to make some arguments in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6. But then in verse 6, he, he really hammers home what the point is. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That's a mouthful, but notice the repetition. Much more excellent. Jesus is bringing something that's much more excellent. Jesus is bringing a covenant that's better. Jesus is bringing promises that are better. So with great clarity and minimally, before we get into all of some of the, 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 the places we're going to have to think our way through some hard spaces, just see that what, what's being argued here is that what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live, die, rise again, and do with His life, His teaching, His words, and His ministry was to establish something better for the people of God. And that which is better is that Jesus has brought a new covenant, and that new covenant is intended to take away the guilt, the shame, the stain, the brokenness, of sin, the condemnation of sin, and offer and make possible and bring to pass forgiveness, reconciliation, acceptance, adoption, care, mercy, grace, and tenderness for the people of God. What he is arguing is that what Jesus has done for his people is the best thing that could ever be done for anyone. And what he's arguing is that if what Jesus has done is better, there is no reason to go looking anywhere else. That is the resounding point of the passage. And then those verses that we kind of skipped over, verses 3, 4, and 5, they make this argument. Remember, the recipients of this book are Jewish background Christians who were struggling to figure out what it looks like to be followers of Jesus and leave the old stuff behind. And so what he's going to argue in verses 3, 4, and 5 is, hey, all that stuff that's characterized your Jewish experience, temples and tabernacles and priests and animal sacrifices, none of that was the real stuff. It was just a shadow. It was just a shadow of the real stuff. That's what verse 5 says. For they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. But now, in Christ, we don't have to look for God through shadows, but we see God in Christ. And we've been found by God in Christ. And we've been redeemed by God in Christ. And we've been forgiven by God in Christ. And we've been accepted into the presence of God by Christ. And we're cared for perpetually and forever in the presence of God by Christ. And the argument is what Jesus came to do is better. 
It's better. Okay, pastor, we get the point. I know we get it here, but I'm wanting us to get it here in our hearts and in our souls. Because when we get it in that deep way that Jesus is better, we'll stop looking for something else to satisfy our souls more than Jesus. So you might have heard this. Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of the people. That's true. But what the Bible tells us is that when sin entered the world, it brought condemnation, but it also brought guilt, it brought fear, it brought shame, it brought, brought re- relational brokenness. And the point is, primarily Jesus forgives us of our sin. But when He forgives us of our sin, He comes to go to work on who we are and heal our shame and heal our guilt and heal our fear and heal our brokenness and make all things new. And so what we're called upon to look at this morning is that what Jesus came to do is the better thing that we all yearn for And what He came to do is going to last forever. And we need to set our minds and our hearts and our affections and our lives on Him and stop seeking other replacements. I believe that's why Hebrews chapter 8 is in the Bible. Now, I'm going to make a very trite illustration of that and see if I can drive the point home. I'm going to talk about house hunting. Sound fun? I did this in the first service, and I started this illustration by saying this. My wife and I don't like our house, which is true. We don't like our house. And I looked up, and there were like four of my neighbors. <laughs> Just spread out. So I have any vintage Noel peeps in here today? None? Okay, good. We're a little safer the second service. Okay. Um, so, I, so I had to make reconciliation with all of them in the middle of the first service. You know, like, I love you, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you, but I don't like my house. Okay, my wife and I, we're not convinced that we like our house. Great part of town, great people, great price point. But we're just not convinced we like it. And so because we're not convinced we like it, do you know what we do? We play the field. We are not faithful to our house. We take calls from all those realtors promising to come and pay us X amount of dollars even though there's a hole in the wall upstairs. They don't care. <laughs> Friends will text us, hey, there's a house for sale and I'll drop everything and go look at it just to find out that it's already been bought with cash. <laughs> but the point is, we perpetually do this because we're not convinced that our house is best for us. And the minute that we're convinced our house is the best house in this part of Hendersonville for our family, do you know what will happen? I'll stop taking those phone calls. I'll stop dropping everything I have to go look at those houses because we'll just settle where we are and be confident. Now, again, that's very trite, right? Like, dude, God gave you a house. Be happy with it. I get that. But the point is, it's the unsettledness inside of us and the, the worrying about are we, mess, are we not doing the right thing that causes us to take the phone calls, that causes us to go look at the houses. And I believe that deep down when, when we're feeling the weight of condemnation, when we're feeling interpersonal brokenness, when we're feeling guilt, shame, fear, when we're feeling the hurt of our past, we're very prone to believe that, that, that we need something better 
than Jesus. Or we need Jesus and something else to make it right. And what I'm praying for you is that this passage will be a clarion call from the Lord to say, stop looking for anything else besides my Son and the grace and mercy that I extend to you and Him because that is the best work that will ever come your way. And I have done it for you. Receive and rest and believe because Jesus is better and He is better forever. That's the main point of this passage. Now, the second point is going to cause us to um, chase a rabbit, but it's only a rabbit because it's in the Bible. Okay, I'm only chasing the rabbit because the author of Hebrews chases it. So, if this gets deep and complex, just go back to the first point, because that's the overarching thing. But the second point is intended to shine a magnifying glass on the first point. And the second point is this. New is better for the last time. New is better for the last time. And this argument is really made in verses 7 through 13. Now, we as modern Americans, we love new. We love new things. Amazon exists because we love new things, right? And I'm no, no guilt and condemnation here. I spent some time on Amazon spending some money last night, right? But we love it because when we look and we find the good deal and it passes all the review tests and we hit order, we get that little endorphin blitz and it feels good to have ordered something, right? And then the next morning they're going to send you a, an email that says, your new thing, your new precious, which gave you an endorphin rush, it shipped. And that's going to give you another endorphin rush. It's going to feel good. And then... Less than two days later, most of the time, they're going to send you a text that says your new thing is nine stops away from your house. I don't know why they choose nine, but it's always nine. And it gets your anticipation up, and you get to the endorphin rush. And then they're going to send you a text that says your new thing is on your front porch, and you're going to get the endorphin rush, and the new is going to feel good. And then you're not home, but you still get the endorphin rush. And so when you get home, as a family, you're going to fight about who gets to run to the front porch and get the new thing and open it, because we all want the endorphin rush of being the first one to see what's inside the box. That's just how we're wired. We love new. And see, the love of new is not a bad thing until the love of new won't let us settle in to the love of God in Christ and believe that there's not anything better. And so what this passage is going to argue is that Jesus is the new way. He's the new covenant. He's the new final word and work of God amongst his people. But it's for the last time because it's final and it will not change. Jesus is the new way. He is the better covenant. He is the better promise. But this new thing is the last new thing that will carry us forever. So in what ways, the passage is begging us to ask, in what ways is Jesus the better and last way? And again, the main point is, He is the better and last way. But in what ways is it so? And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to set up this comparison between what he calls the first covenant and the new covenant. So you get this comparison between the first covenant and the new covenant. The first covenant is going to be called the old covenant, and we might call it 
the covenant of Moses. The covenant enacted by God through Moses. Then he's going to compare it to what he calls the new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant enacted by God through Jesus Christ. And the word covenant simply means an agreement between two parties with promises for the relationship. And so if you work in a place where you have an employment contract, that is a form of covenant. If you're married, what you did on your wedding day when you stood in front of God and many witnesses is you entered a covenant with your spouse. And what this passage is doing is it is comparing this old covenant with the new and better covenant. And to do it, much like a 10th grader writing a research paper, all the author of Hebrews did is went and grabbed a really huge block quotation and dropped it right in the middle of chapter 8. So verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And so what he's doing is he's going to make this argument that what Jesus Christ came to do is the better covenant. He's going to make it by quoting directly from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I believe that the reason he does this is to show that what he is saying is nothing new. But he's also doing it to show that what he is saying is God completing what God promised a long time ago. So look at verse 7. For in that first covenant, that is the old covenant under Moses, given to us in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in the first covenant, it was not faultless, which means it had fault. There would have been no occasion to look for the second. So, so verse 7 is saying that the first covenant was incomplete, and therefore the people were called upon to look for a new and better covenant. And then verse 13, again summarizing the long quote, says that the new covenant makes the first one obsolete. Meaning the work of the first covenant is completed because the second one has come. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the argument is that that there was something in, in God's interaction with His people through Moses which was imperfect and incomplete and needed completion. Well, what is that? Well, let's look at... You don't have to turn back to Jeremiah 31. You can just look at the verses there in your Bible. Verse 8 says, For he finds fault with them when he says... And he's just going to start the quote. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the point is, God says to Israel in exile for their disobedience to God, He says, look for a new covenant. Look for a new mediator. Look for the new way. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So God says this covenant will be different than the one with Moses. So God says look for a new covenant. 
Second, he says, it will be different than the one with Moses. Four, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse three, I mean, number three, Israel failed to keep the covenant. Israel failed to keep the covenant with Moses. Now, what's this new covenant that we're supposed to look for? What's it going to look like? Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. It will be different, number one, because I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So it is implied under the old covenant, everyone who belonged to the people of Israel did not have the law of God written in their minds or on their hearts. It was an external reality, but it was not an internal reality. Promise number two. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now hear this. And hear it carefully, because this is what the Scripture is saying, is that in the Old Covenant, everyone who was a part of Israel was a part of Israel by birth. And everyone who was a part of Israel did not necessarily belong to God by faith. And everyone who was a part of Israel while physically a descendant of Israel, might not have been a child of God who would belong to Him forever. Therefore, within Israel, it was necessary to walk around and say to members of the covenant community, know the Lord, because everyone who was a part of the covenant community did not know the Lord. So another way to say that was, circumcision was given by birth, And everyone inside the circumcised community did not necessarily know the Lord, did not necessarily belong to the Lord, and did not necessarily belong to the Lord forever. That's why we see this language in the prophets of all Israel is not the true Israel. All Israel were the physical descendants. True Israel were those within the physical descendants, a subset who knew the Lord. The good news of the promises... Oh, wait. So the good news of the new covenant is that everyone in the new covenant will know God, will be the people of God, and will walk with God forever. That's what is new in Christ. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The newness of the new covenant is that everyone who knows Christ belongs to God forever has the law of God written on our hearts which means our hearts have been changed to be bent toward God and God's promises and God's blessings will dwell upon us forever and this covenant community is not entered by physical birth but it's entered by faith that's the good news of what Christ came to bring now pause Let's do a bit, little biblical theology. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So are you saying that people in the Old Testament were saved differently than people in the New Testament? No, not at all. 
Salvation in the Old Testament flowed through the promise given to Abraham and not through the promise given to Moses. God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and he said, I will make a great nation out of you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. The New Testament tells us the offspring was Jesus. So always and forever, salvation flows through the offspring of Abraham. But to put this old and new language together, what it's saying is that in the Old Testament world, it was possible to be a part of Moses and not be a part of Abraham. Does that make sense? It was possible to physically belong to the community of faith and not belong to the God of the community. What's great and beautiful about this new way is that the promise to Abraham and the promise to Moses come together in Jesus. And you enter the community by faith, you enter the community by the, through the Son, and everyone who's a part of the community belongs to God through Jesus. That is the beautiful news here. And I'm out of time. Which means, it happened in the first service, don't worry, I was prepared this time. Which means this passage has massive, massive implications for how we think about the local church and how we think about baptism and how we think about the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that together next week. But for today, I want to go back to the main point. And this is the main point. It is better that Jesus is the answer to all of the promises and the work of God forever. It's better. And I want you to believe that it's better. And I want you to stop looking for better ways. So this week, I simply want you to spend some time meditating on verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in Hebrews chapter 8. And, and ponder and think about and wrestle with and grapple to believe that if you're in Christ... God will forever be merciful toward you and your iniquities, and He will remember your sins no more. Wrestle with the fact that you are His people, and He is your God. And wrestle with the fact that He has put His law into your heart and into your minds for His glory. Now, by way of conclusion, church, let's expand this a little bit. Jesus is better, then that means everything Jesus brings to us is better. The better forgiveness of sins, the only forgiveness of sins. The better answer to our guilt, shame, and fear, the only true, lasting answer to our guilt, shame, and fear. The better answer to our relational, horizontal brokenness, really the only lasting answer to our relational and horizontal brokenness. He's given us a place. He's given us belonging. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us acceptance. And He's promised that He'll never turn His back on us. And He's put His law, His word, His ways, His desire into our hearts. And so it's incumbent upon us as the people of God to believe that the word and the law and the way of God is also better. And we Americans hate being told what to do. So the pieces of the gospel that are about grace and forgiveness and acceptance, we love that. But the pieces of the gospel that are about deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, 
the pieces of the gospel that say, husbands, sacrificially love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The pieces of the gospel that say, parents, don't exasperate your children. Say, children, honor your parents. We don't like those because they infringe on our desires. But the call of this passage is to recognize that the law which Jesus placed in our hearts is also a better law. It's better for us to walk in the ways of our Savior. And so I want to call upon you to believe that today. Our hope and our good news flows through Jesus. So I ask you today, Will you believe that all things are made better because Jesus always stands to minister to his people and will do so forever? And will you ask the Spirit of God to guide you and help you stop looking for replacements for Jesus and rest fully and wholly in him? Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. At this time each week, we take the Lord's Supper. We do so because Jesus told us to. We do so because it's good for us. We do so because it renews and restores us in Christ. And we do so because it calls us to rest in Him. So here at Redeemer Church, we invite anyone who is a Christian, anyone who's professed faith in Jesus for salvation and made that known to the church, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. And in so doing today, what we're saying is, Jesus is the better way. I need Christ. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, we don't want you to feel excluded, but at the same time, we'd ask you to let the bread and the cup pass simply because we don't want you to settle for the shadow of the reality. We want you to know Christ. So as the bread and cup's being passed, I would just invite you to look at those verses, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and Hebrews chapter 8, and pray something like this, Lord, is it possible that Jesus really is the Savior that's being talked about here? And is it possible that I could know him? And I believe that he will guide you to truth, and I would love to talk to you about that. So we're going to sing. These guys are going to pass the bread and the cup. I'll come back in a few minutes, and we'll take them together.